Funding for the Hinckley Report and this podcast is made possible in part by the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund and AARP Utah. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report, your weekly political roundup. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Good evening and welcome to the Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Kim Bajorquez, reporter with Axios Salt Lake City, Dennis Romboy, editor with the Deseret News, and Chris Blake, partner with RRJ Consulting. We're so glad to have you on the program. This is an interesting time of year. A lot, is, a lot of things are being set up for the next year, particularly when it comes to elections. Uh, we're, we're about to see a lot of campaigns launch. A lot of people are looking into their races. But I want to talk about a couple in particular, because right out of the gate, at the beginning of the new year, we're going to get some announcements, is what we think. Chris, let's talk about that for just a moment. First, when it comes to the United States Senate, a lot of speculation that John Curtis may announce soon that he is going to jump into that race. Talk about what that means and where he is if he does make that announcement. Well, one of the big changes this year in elections here in Utah is we're going to have the filing deadline at the beginning of January as opposed to the end of the legislative session in March. So it changes a number of dynamics in my mind. I think there are a lot of people at the state level that don't particularly like it. But with John Curtis uh, going to announce getting in, it's going to make for a very competitive Senate race, which I think is to be expected. An open Senate seat is a big deal. They don't come around very often. I mean, for a long time, it was years and years that they didn't come around. And so I think we, we, we're going to see a very competitive race. I wouldn't be surprised if there were other people that still are going to jump in because it's an open Senate seat at this point. Yeah, I want to get to some of the polling on that too, but Dennis, this is such an interesting point. When it used to be this filing deadline, you know, had after the session, it gave people a little bit of a cushion and a little bit of a worry on the issues that come up during the session, which, you know, people are always, always trying to calculate their responses to things. Talk about the impact that has. Yeah, now they have to jump out uh, the gate right right from the get-go right from the first of the year they can't kind of kind of test the waters or put their finger in the air and see what's happening so uh, they make a decision early and we've seen uh, you know Brad Wilson's jumped in already Trent Skaggs, Staggs is in already um, Brad uh, doesn't have a lot of name recognition I don't think so we're seeing uh, television ads already running from him. Yeah, that's true. Speaking of those ads, Kim, it's, it's interesting because a, a PAC came out and started running some commercials uh, to try to encourage John Curtis to run. That same PAC uh, did some polling recently about this race and gave uh, John Curtis 40 percent uh, Brad Wilson, 11%, Stag 6%, 43% undecided, which is kind of huge. But it's interesting to see those numbers ahead of an announcement that may happen soon. I think if John Curtis were to enter the race, I think he would become a major candidate and a leading candidate because he has such great name recognition mm -hmm. compared to the other candidates. Yeah. And as much power that the former House Speaker has, um, it's very difficult for House Speakers to um, gain name recognition yeah. when they run for office. Yeah. Curtis, yeah. Curtis does well uh, with the general electorate, but he doesn't. he's not so much liked by state delegates. And I would I would yeah. assume that there are going to be there would be a, a primary in this race uh, regardless of, of who gets into it. Yeah. Despite Curtis's, I think he, he's well known and well liked in the third district. It'll be interesting to see how much of that carries over statewide. Well, I think we're going to see something other else that's unique. We're going to see either a sitting congressman, a, a former 
a state representative or a, a sitting mayor become U.S. senator. Here in the state of Utah, we have not seen that. Congressmen don't become senators. Sort of that yeah. tradition or what you see in other states isn't is it hasn't happened in Utah. So I'm actually interested to see how that race yeah. plays out and somebody actually elevate from a current sitting political position. Yeah. Chris, given your your experience working with the House in particular, it's it's always interesting what these candidates need is name ID. And sometimes people in the business say if they're an elected official at the state level, particularly in leadership, everyone knows them. But that's not necessarily the case. It takes a lot of work to get that name ID out there. Yeah, and absolutely. And that's, I think, what, back to Dennis's point about Speaker Wilson, he has, he got into this race early, trying to essentially clear the field or at least say, I'm going to be serious about this. And the thing that he has done particularly well is raised money. And that is the key for any Senate race. It's going to be an expensive race, particularly if John Curtis gets in. I, I think John Curtis has proven that he can raise money as well. But but Speaker Wilson has done a really good job of that and has been out. We see already ads, but you see him out campaigning and meeting with people. So he is going to be formidable. It's going to be an expensive and difficult race, yeah. to, regardless of who gets in. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it's going to be competitive. Um, both of the candidates are able, those two candidates particularly, are able to raise a lot of money. Yeah. So, Kim, what's interesting is the domino effect of this. If uh, if John Curtis jumps in the race, people are already talking about whether who, who will fill that particular spot. And we do have a few people who are looking at that. Uh, uh, State Senator Mike Kennedy has already said he's going he's to launch an exploratory committee to run for that. We may see other people running for that as well. But uh, how competitive does that does that get within the, within the party, the Republican Party in particular? Those are the ones who have announced. I mean, it's so rare to have an open seat that it's going to welcome a lot of competition next year. Yeah. So it will. And, and Dennis, uh, it's interesting because well, well, are, are the Democrats going to make this competitive? All they going to run in candidates that, that have a chance in any of these races? That, I, I'd be interested to see that as well. They they recently announced they're kind of trying to reorganize and and get on the same page as a party here in the state. Um, yeah. You know, it'd be interesting to see if they can run any competitive candidates in these races. Yeah, it's true. Kim, uh, speaking of the Democrats, when, when it's looking at the governor's race, we do have a high-profile Democrat who was announced in Brian King, who's been in the in the House, the, the state House representative for a very long time. He's announced, uh, and uh, along with Derek Brown. Talk about what you're hearing when it comes to that particular race, because the AG's race is going to be wide open. Yeah, I mean, when King announced recently that he was running for governor as a Democratic candidate, um, he told me that he was really running um, to stand up for reproductive rights in Utah. Mm -hmm. And um, he also said that he is running against government overreach. And um, even though he has a long shot, um, you know, he's still committed to doing it. I, I believe it's been um, over about 40 years since we last elected a Democratic governor. And it is a long shot campaign, but um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah. Go, well, one of the things I thought 2024 was going to be relatively stayed here in Utah in terms of electoral. But what we've seen just in the last couple of months, obviously, Senator Romney has announced he's not running, which the domino now of John Curtis not running. A.G. Reyes not running. If John Dougal announces for Congress, you open up a seat there. So we're going to see a lot of shifting around, much more mm -hmm. than I originally thought we were going to see, and some opportunities for people to run. A.G., for example, is a spot where people can get engaged there and, yeah. you know, really open up some opportunities. Once again, that domino, you know, a lot of times A.G.s become governors. Um, that hasn't been the case here in Utah, but maybe some people will be looking at that as an opportunity to yeah. kind of step stone into something yeah, else we as well. We Celeste Malloy in, in the second district, right? Mm -hmm. um, she has to run again at yeah. immediately. immediately, basically, yeah. thinking about re-election already. Uh, she already has a Republican challenger. So 
Um, a lot of these uh, seats are attracting, I think, a lot of candidates. Mm -hmm. uh, so on the national level, it's interesting because we're talking about the presidential race. Uh, Utah will be watching closely. We're going to host one of those uh, debates for president. But what's interesting now is uh, is some activities in, in D.C. Kim, let's talk about that first. Uh, there, there was a vote uh, this past week to authorize an, an impeachment inquiry uh, from the House Republicans, United States uh, House of Representatives. Uh, talk about what's happened there a little bit, too, because it looks like even though all of our delegation voted to proceed, it wasn't because they felt like necessarily anything has been proven. Yeah, and I think that's one of the major criticisms that launching this impeachment inquiry um, has garnered. Um, you know, even even Mitt Romney has come out yeah. to say that this is uh, there isn't a lot of proof behind this, or there isn't a lot of evidence of wrongdoing based on this impeachment inquiry. Yeah. Uh, does, Dennis, how does this kind of influence this race going forward? Because, you know, there was a time when you didn't talk about impeachment so much, but we talk about a pretty good amount now. I, I, there's some might argue that this is a little fuel and help President Trump. Uh -huh. A lot of these criticisms of him, um, he's somehow, uh, people don't buy into that, and so they, he's been able to kind of use that as fuel and propel his candidacy even. Maybe it uh, works against the Democrats in some ways as well. Yeah. I'm kind of curious about a recent decision in, in our neighboring state in Colorado, Chris, to see if it fuels that a little bit. It was the Colorado Supreme Court this week ruled that Trump is not eligible to hold office there, will not be on the ballot. People immediately started talking about why is that the case there? And then what does that mean for us here in Utah? Well, I think the Colorado Supreme Court case is interesting for a couple of reasons. The 14th Amendment, which was put in post-Civil War, 18, late 1860s, uh, essentially bars anyone that is has been involved in an armed insurrection or riot against uh, the government of the United States. Obviously put in because a number of southern states at the time were sending Confederate generals and elected officials uh, to, to Congress. And so that amendment was put in place. It's only been used one other time before. It was in the 1920s, I believe. Uh, a socialist candidate was barred from Congress. And ultimately, the U.S. Supreme Court got involved in that conviction, and that, that individual then went on to win a couple of terms in the U.S. House. So I guess what I'm saying is the U.S. Supreme Court is going to play a role in this 2024 presidential election, whether we like it or not. And one of the first issues that they're going to decide are issues around President Trump, both immunity, mm -hmm. uh, this issue of whether the 14th Amendment, I'll, I'll even make the joke, is it, do you read this as an originalist and say, it bars anyone that's been involved in an insurrection. And if it does, that's, a, I think, a potentially a problem for President Trump. Well, it's so interesting, Dennis, because uh, several of these challenges are certainly on their way to the United States Supreme Court. Yeah, and I think uh, the, the Trump team is trying to do everything they can to delay any kind of decisions in these, you know, until the 2024 election is over. I, I think that there's some urgency into the Colorado decision going to the uh, Supreme Court and having a decision yeah. on that. Um, you know, for, first and foremost. Yeah. What's interesting, Kim, is uh, of course our Lieutenant Governor Dieter Henderson was asked about this. What does what does this decision in Colorado mean for us here? And she said it means nothing uh, necessarily. Was was her response? And that's because we pick our candidates through the parties themselves. Yeah, and um, I think what's interesting, and and even though this might not impact Utah right now, 
um, you are, I, I think you are going to see um, Democrats from a variety of states use this as a strategy to get Trump's name out of the ballot. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, California's lieutenant governor recently uh, this week sent a letter to her secretary of state asking to remove um, Trump off the ballot because of this 14th Amendment clause. Uh -huh. Or sorry, 14th clause. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. I, and and our, our own governor weighed in this week, Dennis. I want to I want to read this to you and, and get a comment from what you are hearing out there in the community about this particular approach to this issue. This is from Governor Cox this week in his press conference. He said, I thought Donald Trump did some good things as president. I thought he did some terrible things as president. I, I, and I don't think he should be president again. I really don't. But I hope that the people of the United States will figure that out and can make those decisions. That That's a better way to decide this issue. So I think he's saying this should not be in the hands of nine justices to decide who's on the ballot and who's not. That the, the ballot, that the, that the people, the voters, that's the ballot box. And, and, and that's who decides whether someone should be elected or not. It should not be rest with the courts. Uh -huh. uh, interestingly, uh, to the court question again, uh, a deal was brokered this week. Chris, talk about this because uh, RFK Jr., uh, running as an independent candidate, uh, only needs in Utah a thousand signatures to get on the ballot in Utah. And there were some pressing deadlines, and he, he kind of pushed back on the state. And he was given a little more latitude, a uh, little more time. Talk about first that bar, that thousand signature bar, and why you think that more time is given to him? Well, I'll say a couple things. One, the, the bar here in Utah is pretty low to qualify a, as an independent candidate for the presidential ballot. I believe it's a thousand signatures, 1, which is relatively uh, a low threshold to get on the ballot. The, the only thing that bugs me is, why weren't they paying attention to this? I mean, if you're running a presidential campaign, these types of things need to be be paid attention to and done. And uh, to me, it doesn't seem that difficult to do. That being said, it's clear that Lieutenant Governor Henderson saw that there was some weakness in that deadline and is is clearly working with the legislature and others to extend that deadline to March, mm -hmm. uh, which seems like a reasonable compromise. I know that there are other candidates out trying to get signatures for state legislative races, yeah. and they would have been impacted by that early January deadline. And so it seems reasonable. Uh, but on the, the flip side, I'd say RFK Jr.'s campaign Get your stuff together and have that figured out. Like, if you know that there's a thousand signatures needed, you need to be out here in September and October getting those signatures and not trying to figure out in December uh, why you can't get those signatures. Yeah, and I agree, a thousand signatures is a pretty low bar to get on the uh, as a presidential candidate. Some other states have very high bars. California, for example, you need 200,000 signatures. In Florida mm -hmm. and Texas, it's more than 100,000 signatures. And there's some other uh, stipulations in some of these states to, to get on the ballot. So it's, it's much more difficult. And as an independent candidate, to having to get on the ballot in 50 states to even have a chance yeah. um, is, is very, very difficult. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that the comment from uh, Lieutenant Governor Dita Henderson was she, she made this decision in the spirit of affording every reasonable opportunity for unaffiliated presidential candidates to participate in our general election. Seems like she was opening that, that up, even though the bar is much higher for, register, for Republican and Democratic candidates. Well, so if there's some other obscure independent candidate were yeah. to challenge this, I, I'm not sure that that, that access would be granted yeah. as, as quickly. Uh, can we talk about social media for a second? All these candidates are looking at it, but the state of Utah is clearly looking at the impacts of social media on our kids in particular. And uh, this is starting on March 1st, which is why it's interesting, Chris, to see how this legislation been passed. This is our, these are bills already on, that have been passed by our legislature. Parents must give permission for a minor to open a social media account and platform
forms must verify the age of all the users to maintain an account. That's part one. Part two is a state mandated curfew. This was from 10.30 to p.m. until 6.30 a.m. unless authorized by a parent. These are some pretty restrictive laws and it's been challenged this week. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a that's a rule also in the Blake household. You've got to turn in your phone by 1030. <laughs> okay, you, you can't get it until the morning. So I agree with that. But NetChoice, an Internet advocacy group out of Washington, D.C., filed suit against this. I think the legislature knows that the lawsuits were coming, but also recognizes the need to make some changes to these laws, which they intend to do this upcoming legislative session. Uh, there was a case in Arkansas where the, the, the district court there uh, enjoined similar type laws and have given sort of a roadmap on what the state of Utah is going to need to do to tweak the law to potentially uh, withstand um, that legal uh, problem that, that are being raised in terms of First Amendment issues. So I think absolutely we're going to see some changes, but I also believe that the uh, political establishment here in Utah is pretty squarely behind the idea that we need to do something, yeah. and and we're going to see more of that rather than less of it this yeah. year. It's interesting, Dennis. Uh, the governor and was not surprised at all that these challenges were coming. In fact, allocated money in his budget to help fight the lawsuits. Yeah, I think he's all in on this. I, I don't think they're going to back off on this. I wouldn't be surprised if the courts stay these uh, laws for, for a period of time and, and we battle this out mm -hmm. in court. And, you know, Governor Cox has also gone so far as to say he wants to ban cell phones from yeah. classrooms now, too, um, which will be an interesting, uh, more of a local uh, issue than, than a national issue. Yeah. I want to talk about that for a minute, Kim, um, because uh, Governor Cox has weighed in on this. Of course, this is net choice that filed this, this lawsuit against the state, and it did get to this cell phone issue for sure. In fact, Governor Cox uh, this week said that he was going to send a letter to every principal, every school in the state, asking them to take measures to prevent smartphones from being in the hands of kids during class time. This certainly seems like an issue that people are starting to talk about, not just the governor, but through our legislature. Yeah, um, I definitely see um, this issue being one of Governor Cox's marquee issues. Um, I think from the beginning, he knew that this legislation wasn't going to be foolproof and that it was going to prompt and invite yeah. legal challenges from our social media conglomerates. Um, so it's not a surprise that, you know, in, you know, uh, as as we wait for this law to go in effect in March, it's not a surprise that he's already yeah. reaching out to schools, to principals, to try to limit cell phone use in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So th this issue, Chris, is, is not just here in the state. Senator Romney uh, this past week is al also asking uh, federal agencies to look at the impacts, the mental health impacts, and the uh, and the achievement aspects uh, of schools when cell phone policies are not uh, are, are not restrictive. Well, we've certainly seen the, the pendulum swing on this issue, uh, you know, not that long ago it was how can we incorporate more technology into the classroom to better prepare our students. Mm -hmm. We're st certainly seeing that shift to we need to take out some of this technology and, and focus in a different way. I think there's probably somewhere in the middle where this will swing. Um, I, I think one of the people that will have more problems with technology in the classroom are parents that, you know, they there's an expectation that they can get in touch with their kid or or make contact with them. And so there's going to be concerns there. but. There clearly needs to be an, a balance in terms of 
you know, what, what is allowed, but also what are students doing in the classroom? You know, are they being distracted or are they losing attention because there's too much technology or their phones yeah. are causing a problem within the classroom? I think that's what <clears throat> Senator Romney wants to get to in studying that issue. Is it actually a distraction? Is it impacting, mm -hmm. impeding learning in the classroom? Are kids, uh, you know, spending time playing games on their phones and not using them for any kind of educational purpose? I, I think there's got to be a, some kind of a balance there. Yeah. I, I remember some years back, I think there was an effort in the state to put, I think it was like an iPad in every kid's hands in, yeah. in the classroom, right? It was. And, uh, and now, like Chris said, we're kind of trying to pull that back a little bit because we've seen what can happen when, when kids get too distracted. It, it seems from our elected officials, though, they're trying to, to, to prove the case one way or the other. Uh, are we going to see some legislation potentially on this issue? I would think so. Um, it's interesting to me that it, it, why not leave this up to the individual schools or individual school districts? You know, the, the legislature's always involved in these kinds of things. Uh, maybe there is a purpose for having the, the phone in, in particular instances in the class and, and it's useful for, for learning. I, you know, I don't know. Well, and I hope that the data, whether that come from a federal level or even a state level, could could you prove a, a useful baseline for principals and teachers to make decisions about their classroom. I, I think technology is going to play a role. We're not going to remove phones. These these kids have, you know, are using them, and maybe there are better ways we can utilize it. But finding a balance also in terms of what does the data say on when it should be used or not be used or how best to use it. I mean, those things I think would be really valuable to those districts yeah, I agree. and teachers. That'd be very helpful to to know exactly. Exactly yeah. what, what's happening with the kids in school with, with I think technology. This one sure seems like it's coming. Uh, and maybe for this session, we'll talk more about this too, because we're starting to see the priorities uh, get, get put out. You know, lists are being put out. And Kim, th this uh, this week, the the Senate uh, put out their priority list. And it's interesting because the top three things were these: the first one is energy independence, number two is optimizing water supply and infrastructure, and affordable housing. These are some pretty big issues. What are you hearing about the, about the Senate and and maybe the people that you interview too about these being the big ticket items for the Senate this year? Well, housing affordability is a big issue in this state. Um, you know, you can't you can't really make the same wage that we used to and be able to afford yeah. a down payment for a home. Um, and you know, Utah prides itself on its big families, on being family oriented. And if young couples or or individuals aren't able to buy their first home, um, it's definitely something yeah. that the legislature wants to focus on. Yeah, it's it. Go ahead, Dennis. You know, the governor's uh, proposed to put what 150 million dollars yeah. into programs that help foster the construction of starter homes and, and build up the first time home buyer program, which already had $50 million to begin with. And I think that's been a fairly successful uh, program in the past year. Um, those are some of his efforts, and we'll see if, if the legislature is is in line with, with yeah. as much as he's asking for for those programs. Well, and I, I was going to say, one of the things you mentioned there, energy independence, uh, President Adams and Speaker Schultz have talked uh, about the importance of having low-cost, reliable energy mm -hmm. and what an impact that has had on the economic development and growth of this state, and that is an issue that they've felt very passionately on. You're seeing some of that on the impact of IPP and what, what's happening down yeah, there. Talk about but, that power plant. People yeah, absolutely. I mean, IPP is a, a power plant in rural Utah that largely ships its electricity to California and, you know, is, is looking at making some changes uh, in terms of its coal supply, fuel supply, and, and how it's fed. And that has not gone over well in rural Utah. But I think we're going to see continued 
uh, focus on energy independence in Utah. Do the states to, to our left, California, Oregon, Washington, are they going to determine Utah's future as it relates to its mm -hmm. power supply and, and what they're able to do? Or is Utah going to take more control over its power future and destiny? And I think that right now, the political establishment in Utah very much wants to make a change and try to take more mm -hmm. uh, control over what, what happens with its power supply. Well, in terms of power, too, Dennis, because so you, you, you all mentioned this, this idea on this affordable housing, too. It's interesting to see the legislature and the governor putting this as one of their top priorities. This has historically been something you kind of happened at the local level on this, but it's certainly not the case now. Just because it's so impactful statewide, I mean, um, it's it, like like Kim was saying, it's so difficult uh, on a you know a median income to 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 buy a home, and I think I think Governor Cox talked about home ownership is one of the keys to having a, a successful community, a society, um, to be able to own your own home. I, I don't know if that's true or not. I've seen. Thousands and thousands of apartment buildings and townhomes going up too, yeah, and, yeah. and younger people seem content to to live in in those uh, types of environments. So, uh, I don't know how much you know. I, there is demand for home ownership, obviously, but I don't know how much among the younger generation now, from just what I'm seeing out there. Mm -hmm. uh, what other issues do you see in our, our final couple of minutes here that you see coming for this legislative session? What do you see coming, Kim? Well, definitely, um, I do wonder if Utah may follow in the footsteps of Florida when it comes to. Um, stopping state dollars um, being funded into diversity, equity, uh -huh. and inclusion programs in higher education campuses. We knew that um, there was a, an Ogden senator um, who proposed a bill last year and quickly, uh, quickly pulled it, mm -hmm. um, but I think we're definitely gonna see challenges to uh, DEI programs in universities, which are intended to close gaps in college attainment among people of color, among groups that have been historically marginalized. Mm -hmm. And um, thinking about Governor Cox's recent comments on DEI programs, he, he accused them of uh, politicizing issues um, and causing division. Uh, so it'll be really interesting yeah. to see how universities and public higher, or public colleges respond to yeah, those attacks. That was definitely coming. Thanks for that one. How are you, Dennis? Um, I'd be interested to know if there's going to be a tax cut. I think legislative yeah. leaders want to offer a tax cut. I don't know if the state revenues are uh, as, as uh, robust as they have been in some of the past years, and so that'll be an interesting issue to see if, if there's another tax cut. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting because you know, we haven't seen those budget numbers, but they're certainly talking about that. Chris, your issue, and then any, well, any, any last, last end of year comments to those as we get ready to start the legislative session? Well, I think there's some significant issues uh, that some of which we've talked on, energy independence, housing affordability, I think are gonna be important. Great Salt Lake remains an important issue, and I think that's a, a place where the state has done a great job and needs to continue to focus, making sure that that asset is protected and, and well cared for. And I think we're gonna see water generally continue yeah. as a theme, um, as well as the tax cut. I, I just think that what's important is, uh, you know, the state continues to grow and, and finds way to uh, make a, an environment that's positive and, and mobile here in the state of Utah. Thank you so much for your insights this evening. Can't wait for this next year. Thank you for listening to the Hinkley Report. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help more people find out about it, please rate it and leave us a positive review.